Hey guys, it's Kendra. And this is Jessica. And you're listening to Lucid Lab. It's almost my birthday and I'm going to be really, really old. I'm just kidding. You're older. (laughs) You're going to be older by the time this episode comes out. That's true. We're in the future. Yes, I'm always older than you forever. (laughs) I'll be 38. Getting closer to the 40. Mm -hmm. It's so weird. I feel like I just skipped 20 years of my life. It's crazy to think back like Even 2020 feels like that was just yesterday, and it's been four years now. I know. It's wild. They always say time goes faster the older you get, and I am seeing that Mm -hmm. already in my 40s, so I can't imagine by the time I'm in my 60s how it must feel. Oh, I hope it slows down when we're older. I really do. We won't be doing as much. You would think it would slow down. Or hopefully we're doing more. That's true. More of what we love instead of just the rat race or whatever we have to do now, raising kids working jobs, things like that. The weeks go by so fast. Days go by so fast. I feel like Monday through Friday is like blip. Yep. And then the weekend's like blip. Super blip. And then (laughs) it's just we're doing it again and we're doing it again and we're doing it again. It's kind of frustrating. But when this episode comes out, it's going to be my brother Brian's birthday. So happy birthday, Brian. You don't even listen to me, but that's okay. I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) Your sister's going to tell him. It's a little dark for my brother, I think. Oh, is it? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's dark for a lot of people. My dad's birthday is coming up in a few days because he's January 20th. Okay. So happy birthday to my dad. I know that he does listen to this. So happy birthday, Kendra's dad. I don't know your name. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just leave it that way. I won't give him fame if he doesn't want it. Um, Speaking of birthdays, so I was over at my friend's house last night. She's hitting her 40th birthday. Mm. And her bucket list item is to do Machu Picchu, mm-hmm. like actually hiking it. And she has somehow roped me into it because it's going to be a lot. But we mm-hmm. booked our trip last night, which crazy thing. How much do you think it would be to fly to Peru? I was thinking. I know, 2000 round trip. It was $500. Wow. Round trip. That's less than to s- Lima. I can't fly to fucking Orlando for $500. So we weren't going to book. We were just going to look at it. And Um, we saw it for $500. And I'm like, we have to book this now. This is not normal. Is it an okay airline? It's Delta. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I'm like, don't don't be a Leah right now. (laughs) It's Alpaca Airlines. They just opened last week. Alpaca (laughs) Airlines. (laughs) Anyways, we're going to do this. And it's like a 26-mile hike over three days. And I'm using it because we're at the beginning of the year. I want to be in better shape because I've just let myself go as far as doing yoga and Mm -hmm. like my flexibility is non-existent now and my cardio and everything so now it's like I've put the money down and I Mm -hmm. have to get in shape because I cannot hike 26 miles in the shape I am now I can't hike two flights of stairs no I can barely bend down sometimes (laughs) so now I have a kick in the butt to really make sure I do something cool because I don't want to be the American girl that has to get like help taken off the mountain you're put on a donkey (laughs) yes I I need to finish for my own like you're like accomplishment feeling I'll see you later I'm gonna take the train (laughs) I'll leave her alone I'll be like you know what I've changed my mind happy birthday (laughs) I'm gonna stay in this really posh hotel and take the train up I'll meet you there That would be really cool. Now I feel like I need to make a goal physically for myself. It can't be Machu Picchu, but. Well, you can join us. We are going to do a girls group because there's, I think, like eight. Apparently there's an app out there and you put money in like $20. And if you meet your goal for the month, you get your $20 back. 
if you don't meet your goal, then it goes into a pool and other people who meet their goal get your money. So it's almost like a gambling on your yourself. Yeah. And when you put money in, I know I. But what is it for? Is it for working out? Yeah. Like you set whatever goal it is. So your goal could be I'm going to walk 10,000 steps a day for the whole month. And if you Mm -hmm. don't hit every single day, you lose your twenty dollars. If okay. you hit it, you get your $20 back and you might get more back if other people But fall what if out. they're not honest? I think it's all tracked through your Apple Watch. Oh. So there's no well, way Then to I can't budget. do that. So you have to have an Apple Watch. It's like an Apple Watch or a Fitbit. There's a few different Yeah, I don't things, have that. So, but. I have a cheap version that tells me my heart rate every now and then. <laughs> I don't know. We just started talking about it last night after we booked Machu Picchu and both of us were like, we're going to die. So we have to do something. <laughs> yeah. But that's starting for me probably February 1st. I got to get through yeah. all of my bad eating habits from the holidays. I wish I was in a position to be able to commit to something like that. Yeah. That far away, but I'm not. Well, this is nine months. So I have a, a goal. Setting it out nine months, I think, is realistic for how long it's going to take me to get I in shape. I also have a child who's in school at the time. Yeah. So, so it's my friend's different. single with no children yeah. and then my kids are grown so they can yeah. do their own thing. So I'll <laughs> be you in a decade. Yeah. <laughs> True. Because I probably was not working out much at all when my kids were around nine. Oh, I'm just talking about a trip to Machu Picchu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So what are we doing this week? I kind of teased it last time. We're going to be going to Yosemite. Yosemite. You're going Mm -hmm. to scare me away from wanting to go to the National Park. Needs to be careful. Ooh, it's a child's cult or... Wait, I don't know what you're doing. Yeah, you have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) So this story is about the Stainer family. Have you heard about the Stainers? I know nothing about this. I'm sure some people know about this, but I don't know. I didn't know about it. When did this happen? So this is in the 70s. Oh, wait. Oh, 70s, California. It's going to be wild. I can already tell. But more importantly, this is about two brothers. And it's a twist that I didn't see coming. So I came upon this story by accident. I was listening to a podcast or some story about another thing that I was looking into about possibly doing. And I was like doing dishes at the same time. And at some point, it shifted from that to another topic altogether. And I was busy. I just like left it. Mm -hmm. And I was listening as I... I was doing a bunch of stuff and then there was like this twist and I was like oh, I didn't see that coming okay now I have to cover You're this like, story this is a good story it came yeah. to you like out of the universe so yeah it's a sign no nope. do this this one is instead. what you need to bring and it's a difficult story and it might not be a big twist because I honestly don't even know how I wrote this if it's gonna seem surprising or not <laughs> but for me it was a twist because I had never heard the story before and it's a lot I think okay. so as we like to say sometimes this family was the all-American family that seemed normal and loving. Aren't they always? Aren't they always? <laughs> the Stainer family. Delbert and Kay Stainer had five children. They had two sons, Carrie and Stephen, okay. and three daughters, Jody, Cindy, and Corey. Carrie was the oldest, and Corey was the youngest. They lived in Merced, California. Where is that? I feel like I've seen that on a map, like Central. Merced is kind of the opening to Yosemite. So okay. the road to get to Yosemite, you have to go through Merced. That's probably where I saw it because I was looking okay. recently for my trip. So the story here really starts with the young seven-year-old Stephen Gregory Stainer. Okay. He was born April 18th, 1965. And we were starting on December 4th, 1972. Okay. This is three weeks before Christmas. Stephen was on his way home from school. His mother was supposed to pick him up, but she was held up doing an errand for her husband, something. Yeah. He decided to walk home 
he was approached by a man named Irvin Edward Murphy. Okay. Irvin was handing out gospel pamphlets to boys on their way home from school that day. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, one of those guys. <laughs> he was also seeking donations for his church. Oh, that's convenient. Quote, church. <laughs> he stopped Stephen and asked him if his mother would have anything she might be willing to donate to this church. Mm. Sweet young Stephen said, yeah. Oh, shit. Because it's something he thought his mother would do. Okay. Murphy asked Stephen where she lived and if he could take him there. That's creepy already. Yeah. But Stephen agreed. At seven. Wow. He was taught to always respect his elders. Mm-hmm. He trusted everyone and he was a really helpful little kid at the time. He was always trying to do the right thing. But what Stephen didn't know was that Murphy was not who he claimed to be. Of course. Murphy himself, though, he was actually known to be a trusting but naive person. So he was kind of duped himself. He was simple minded. Okay. He was befriended by a co-worker, Kenneth Parnell. Mm -hmm. They worked together at a resort in Yosemite National Park. It is argued what their exact relationship was, but the story is that Parnell passed himself off as an aspiring minister of sorts and convinced Murphy, this guy who doesn't really know everything, Uh that he needed a young boy so that he could, quote, raise him in a religious type deal. Whoa. So he sent Murphy out to find such a boy, and that day he decided on Stephen. Oh, and Stephen just happened to be walking home. And Stephen just happened to be a sweet, religious, little boy. innocent little boy. He thought he was doing a good thing. Just about the time Stephen agreed to take Murphy to his home for these items to donate, Parnell pulled up in a Buick. Oh, no. Sadly, he willingly got into the car with Murphy, and they drove off. But they didn't take him home, of course. No. They pretended to stop at a payphone to call his parents, but returned to the car saying that his parents said that they didn't want him back. What? Just like that. <laughs> they were like, oh, good. I'm glad you picked him up because we don't want him anymore. What? Yeah. I mean, it's a seven-year-old. Seven but seven-year-olds are manipulated easily. I know. Parnell took him to a cabin in Kathy's Valley. Unbeknownst to Stephen, Parnell's cabin was several hundred feet away from Stephen's great-grandfather's place. Hmm. So it was very close. This was his mother's grandfather. Okay. Stephen immediately started begging to go home. Of course. He didn't know, but already at that time, his parents had reported him missing. Mm -hmm. His mom had gone to the school. She knew that she was late, but Stephen had already left. She went home. And when he didn't come home from school, she panicked. Fuck, That's like a parent's worst nightmare. I know. Especially if you were late to get your kid. Can you imagine the guilt with that? Right. Mm -hmm. You never get over it. No. They have a lot more things in place nowadays. Right. But yeah, they called the police a couple of hours after he didn't come home. You know, back then, everyone was roaming around, walking around when they were young. Yeah, that was just part of the culture. Right. If that happened with my daughter now in any way, meaning she wasn't there when she was supposed to be. Oh, my God. I would immediately call because we have this stuff figured out to the minute nowadays. So I, yeah, the fucking 70s. (laughs) I could not have raised children in the 70s. No, I'm too anxious of a person. I know. I can't. I'm so glad that I was raising kids when I was, Mm -hmm. when there were all the security measures in place. Yeah. But they called and a massive search was underway. Everyone was canvassing and looking. You know, this makes me think of something, too. I take my daughter to school every morning Mm -hmm. and every morning I see a child younger than her walking to school. The way we drive to school, it's sort of this back way. Yeah. And this back way is pretty undeveloped. So just so there's a lot of empty space, trees. There's even a stream. 
And he's walking to school by himself. And not only that, it's winter and he's often in shorts. And I see him every single morning and I'm like, I can't stop and help him because then I'd be the weirdo abductee person. I can't do that. But I just worry about him because I don't know how far he's walking. Sometimes if we're late, he'll be further along. And I'm like, I don't know where a school is right here. So how far, how long is he walking? And he's younger than my daughter. That's sad that there's not a bus or something to take him because, you know, know. he's walking probably because his parents have to be at work. So when I don't see him in the morning now, then I worry. Yes. Anybody could pick him up right here. Mm -hmm. He's tiny. But I also don't know his situation. Yeah. Like he's getting himself to school every morning. Maybe his home situation isn't good, but he really loves school. So like that's his getaway. And so he will walk however long he has to walk to get there I, I don't know yeah we can't judge everyone it's just that we know what happens when little kids are out by themselves and you just worry maybe he's a tough kid and his parents send him along with pepper spray and and a knife <laughs> yeah but then he'll get in trouble if he has that <laughs> at school <laughs> Anyway, so we're back to the cabin, mm-hmm. and that night, Parnell molested Stephen. Oh. Yeah. And 13 days later, on December 17th, he raped Stephen for the first time. Oh, my God. Seven, Seven years, years old. old. I just, mm, my brain can't even go there. I just can't. Sick fucking people in this world. I know. There has to be a special place for them to go. And yes, we talk about it all the time. Usually, child molesters were victims themselves years ago, but it's still like... <laughs> I don't know. How do you fix it? It's so fucked up. It doesn't excuse what you do when you're an adult. Right. It just still doesn't, like, you know? Get therapy. Mm-hmm. He continued to beg to go home. Of course. Oh, my God. So Parnell started to tell him that his family didn't want him again, mm. that they gave him to Parnell because they had too many children and couldn't afford to raise him, just him, mm. even though he's the second born. He told Stephen that he was granted legal custody of him. Oh, God. He even left one day and went to the courthouse, or he said he went to the courthouse Mm. and it was made legal. Well, I mean, it's not hard to dupe a seven-year-old. Yeah. (laughs) Went outside for a walk, came back. He's like, oh, I just went to the courthouse. Went to the courthouse. After Parnell felt like he had the control he wanted over Stephen and had broken him down enough that he believed what Parnell was saying... Stephen's name was changed to Dennis Gregory Parnell. That's not as good of a name. And he was enrolled at Steel Lane Elementary within weeks of his disappearance. That is crazy. And I'm surprised that Kenneth Parnell would let him go to school because you think he would say something. He obviously has brainwashed him enough. Yeah. You just said that. He yeah. felt like he had control. Yeah. He pretended to be Stephen's father. I'm going to call him Stephen for the rest. I'm not calling him Dennis in He's this. He's not Dennis. Yeah. They moved around a lot, living in different areas in California, including Santa Rosa and Comchi. He started drinking alcohol at a really young age with Parnell, allowing it. Probably to help him cope with what was going on. I mean, it was probably offered early on as a way to easily molest him as well, to stop him from fighting back. Mm -hmm. In school, Stephen was actually quite popular at different times. He made friends easily and participated in school activities. He was able to maintain an appearance of normalcy, despite mm-hmm. having a very dark secret. To some, he was just a normal, fun kid. He wasn't always in school, but when he was, he was good at finding a way to fit in. Okay. Although there were signs, specifically in some areas, I think in Comchi. Like teachers notice something or? Just people who knew him, people in the area. People were aware that he was allowed to like drive, drink, and smoke like at a really young age. <laughs> A lot of people just thought he was spoiled in that way. Mm. Some were concerned. The kids in the area knew him to be a bit disheveled. 
Okay. He only had a few pairs of pants that he wore again and again and again. He had holes in his clothes, his socks and his shoes. He had dirty fingernails. He had dirty ankles. They said, you know, they were worried about him and his yeah. friends were never allowed to go to his house. Mm-hmm. It was kind of known that you don't go to his house. And if he was ever getting picked up by somebody, he would meet them at the end of like his really long driveway. Interesting. I believed he lived in a trailer home at the time. What did Kenneth Parnell do for he was all like he over money. the place? Yeah. But no one really thought anything of it because especially in this area, everyone sort of lived by that motto, like your business is your business. Yeah. It's whatever. It's a small mountainy type area and everybody minds their own business. But they had no idea what was actually going on. When Stephen was 11, a woman named Barbara Matthias or Mateus came to live with Parnell and Stephen. She was Parnell's mistress of what? sorts. Okay. <laughs> and no, she didn't just think he was his son. She was just as sick as Parnell. Oh, no. She raped Stephen, too. <gasps> she lived with them for 18 months and upon Parnell's request tried to abduct another little boy but wasn't able to this is wow yeah she claims that she didn't know that steven was abducted by parnell but i'm sure she knew she, she was knew a monster it wasn't too. his son yeah. yeah sick men and sick women you don't hear about these sick women as much but I know. they're out there apparently they are because they like the men it's like this like they do it to impress the sick right. man but it's also itching their own yeah they've got some sick crap shit going, going on, on. In addition to the molestation, Parnell's attitude altered from severe beatings to sometimes spoiling him. So it was this back and forth. At some point, Parnell was growing nervous about stuff coming out and picked everything up and left with Stephen. So they weren't in Compshi anymore. And if they weren't in a home, they were in motel rooms wherever they ended up in California for a time. Mm -hmm. Eventually, they ended up in Point area. He started high school there. They were living in a one-room shack out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Soon, Stephen was allowed to come and go as he pleased. It's just really a fucked up situation. Yeah. He had Stephen completely controlled without having to cage him anymore. Well, when you get him at seven yeah. you, and manipulate him for years and years and years. Yep. Parnell would take odd jobs here and there, some that required him to even travel, and he would leave Stephen alone. Stephen could have escaped, but he was made to believe that no one wanted him. He had nowhere to go. He didn't even know where to go if he were to leave, so he stayed. And thankfully, while there, at some point, Stephen was given a dog. Okay, so he had a... It was a dog he loved. Yeah. It was a Manchester Terrier named Queenie. Aww. He didn't know it, but the dog was actually given to Parnell by Parnell's mother, and she didn't know about Stephen's existence. But oh, my God. it became like his dog in this <laughs> weird exchange, and he loved that dog. But as Stephen reached puberty, Parnell was losing sexual interest in him and tried to get him to help abduct, abduct other little boys. Oh, no. He wanted Stephen to become an accomplice. Ew. Really, to turn him into a version of himself and just yeah. continue this, this horrible cycle mm -hmm. of sickness. It is also thought that as he grew up, you know, Stephen's size, he just wasn't able to do anything with that anymore. Now, Stephen really, if he wanted to, could was, fight back. He was like a man size right. now. Yeah. But no attempts with Stephen trying to help were successful. Stephen was 14 years old at this point. He had been with Parnell for seven years. Unfortunately, though, Parnell, along with one of Stephen's friends from school, I didn't really get the background to how this came to be, a boy named Randall Sean Poorman. With Parnell, they kidnapped a five-year-old boy. Oh, my God. He was obviously skilled in convincing people to help him or be right. part of something. He promised Poorman drugs and money for helping oh, him. Okay. And on February 13th, 1980, they abducted five-year-old Timmy White in Ukiah, California. He was playing in front of his home that day. They pulled up to his yard and called him over. 
The sweet little boy walked up to the car, but when they tried to convince him to get in, his stranger danger alarms did go off and he tried running inside. Yeah. But Poorman got out of the car, ran him down, stopped him and threw him against this like chain link fence and dragged him kicking and screaming into the car. Where was it? He was outside in his front yard. How did his parents not see this? I don't know. I don't know how big their house was. I don't know what they were doing. But it's just that That instant of concern of the time. Yeah. You just your kids like I want to go play ball in the front yard. You're like, okay, see you in five hours. You know, you don't come in when it's dinner time. It's (laughs) true. That used to be it. Come in when you see the sun going down or come in when I turn on the porch light. It was usually when the street lights came on. Right. It's time to go home. Something like that. I mean, we grew up. I don't know about you. I grew up that way. I would be five streets over. My parents had no idea where I was. I was further than that. Yeah. I would be playing in ditches and stuff. We had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) We were playing on a construction site. I'm surprised we didn't kill ourselves. I was like every day walking past something that could have electrocuted me to death (laughs) and I decided to play with fire one day. I'd like throw sticks against it. Maybe I should touch it. Maybe I should touch it. Right. We were (laughs) feral cats. We were. (laughs) We survived. And we're here. But not everyone did. And if you were a pedophilic kidnapper, crazy Parnell guy, it was your perfect opportunity. Yeah. And now they just have to be a little bit more specific in the way that they do these things. Yeah. Now they do it. It was easy. Now they do it through the Internet and they lure kids that way. Gross. So Timmy was brought back to where he and Stephen were living. Okay. Poorman was paid off as promised and sent away, threatened to never speak of the incident again. Yep. Stephen came home from school that day and he saw Timmy. Mm. Parnell told Stephen, happy Valentine's Day. This is your new little brother. Valentine's Day? Yeah. Well, the, Didn't he was, want a brother and he knows yeah. what's going to happen to that little kid. Exactly. Parnell immediately started to try and groom Timmy and quickly changed his name to Tommy. Timmy had blonde hair and he dyed it brown. Mm-hmm. And from that point, Timmy was now his younger son and brother to Stephen. Timmy immediately took to Stephen, though, of course. I mean, yeah. he's, here's this other kid and it's strange and he right. doesn't know what's happening to him. And Stephen took to him and Stephen knew that he had to do something. Immediately, yeah. that's when he knew he had no choice. Like He had to help this child. I wasn't going to save myself, but now I have to. Stephen decided to act after witnessing Timmy's yearning for his family because it didn't right. stop. And he didn't want him to endure the sexual abuse that he did. Good for him. So yeah. he made a promise to himself to get the little boy back to his parents. And it didn't take him that long to figure it out. Only 16 days after Timmy was captured on March 1st, 1980, while Parnell was working a night security job, Stephen escaped with Timmy. Good. It was at night. It was raining and it was windy. And they had to walk a long while because Parnell had them living in the backcountry. In the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. They tried running for a while. Several cars passed and didn't stop. But they came upon a truck on the road that agreed to take them into town to Ukiah. Okay. Thankfully, not a bad man. <laughs> right. You never know when I you know. get in a truck. Unfortunately, Timmy didn't know his address. He was mm-hmm. too young and he didn't know how to get home, but he did know sort of where his babysitter lived and was able to direct them there. So they drove there. She wasn't home. Oh. So they went to a payphone to look up an address for the police station and they went to the Ukiah police station. At first, Stainer was not going to go in with Timmy. Like he got there and he instructed Timmy, like, go in, Just go in. walk mm-hmm. in, tell the police who you are. He was a missing boy and they were actively looking for him. Oh, still. that's good. So, but poor little Timmy, he got scared. Like he ran up to the door and didn't want it. He's still a little boy. Yeah. And he ran back to Steven. But there was a cop or someone who witnessed this from the inside and was like, what's going yeah, on? And so they went out and approached them. 
And so they both went inside. And this is when Stephen told the cops famously, I know my first name is Stephen. Okay. That's going to come up later. But he actually said it in this written statement. I'm 14 years of age. I don't know my birth date, but I use April 18th, 1965. I know my first name is Stephen. I'm pretty sure my last name is Stainer. And if I have a middle name, I don't know it. Okay. The cops originally considered him a delinquent because he's Mm -hmm. older now. Yeah. But they did go about this exhaustive search of missing child posters to confirm that he was a missing child. And Good. they did find out. him. Yeah. So I'm going to stop there for a moment. Stephen and Timmy are away from him. Good. They're safe for now. I'll talk about what happened after this. But what about Stephen's family? So we yeah. talked a little bit. We don't know much about them, what they have been up to for seven years that he's been missing. So just a little snippet here. At the time Stephen was taken, Delbert, his father, served as a mechanic at a peach can factory. Okay. He went by Dell, to those who knew him. Kay was a stay-at-home mom. Kay was characterized by many as cold and distant, which I'll come to later. Um, She's an interesting woman. This family had its own secrets, though. Mm. (laughs) Not the all-American family they were painted out to be in the beginning. Kay was raised to keep her emotions to herself by her father. You know, we're growing up in that time. So don't hold everything against this family with what I say, because we don't know exactly what happened, but it is known. So when I'm saying this stuff over the next, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, I don't know, just take it with a grain of salt in a way. But this is what's known, but not specific details. And emotions and all of that. That was of the time back then. Yeah. People were very, what's the word I'm thinking? And I'm sure if religion is part of it, then, you know, always, yeah, that's another layer. But her father didn't want her coming off as crazy like her mother. Mm. Kay and Delbert raised their children the same way. There wasn't an ounce of sentimental touch. They had no warmth for their children in that way. Okay. She was molested as a child. Mm. I'm not positive who assaulted her, but I assume her father because she tried to keep her father away from her daughters whenever he stayed with them. Makes sense. Yep. But sadly, they were still unsafe as it has been reported later in life by his own daughters that Delbert continued this cycle of parental molestation. Ah, Damn. Why? I know. But I guess she's probably attracted to someone similar to her father. That's hard. There's so much of that kind of cycle. Logical. No, it just sucks that these babies are not safe from their own parents. I just hate it so much. Yeah, we talked about it with John Bonet, and it's like it's so prevalent. We all want to pretend like it's not. It's so fucking prevalent. I mean, just taking my daughter into school, sometimes I can't help and like look at the crowd of all these little children and be like, how many? How many? What is it? Like one in seven or so? Well, one in four girls is molested by somebody. That doesn't make me feel good. Oh my God. Before age of 18. Yeah. I mean, I can believe that, especially into the teenage years, but it's the little ones right now. Uh, Yeah. So we can imagine that the home Stephen lived in before he was taken probably wasn't the easiest. And it sounds like they were not emotionally cared for. Right. So that may be why it was very easy for him to believe his parents didn't want him. Yeah, it's quite true. But when Stephen went missing, Delbert was fixated on finding him and he neglected his other four children. Oh, that's not good. (laughs) Especially his oldest, Carrie. And to add salt to the wound for these children, Delbert began to refer to Stephen as his real son. What? He had another son, though. I know. Fuck. He was obsessed with finding Stephen, as I would be. I mean, if my kid's gone, I get it. But if you have other children, you need to be comforting them as well. And he was paying a little too much attention to his daughters. So, yeah. But they don't have their brother. You know, their Mm -hmm. brother's missing, too. They're going through all these emotions. 
But Stephen missing became their life. They sent out flyers about Stephen. They went on road trips to talk to people who might know what happened to him. But even though they were constantly searching, they avoided watching the TV just in case there was any mention of Stephen. Because if there was, then Delbert would cry and retreat from his children even more. So as they were taught, all of the children kept their feelings to themselves. Mm -hmm. They were on their own. They learned not to ask anything about Stephen. If one did, they would kind of elbow each each other like don't do that knock it off we're not supposed to they did their best to keep quiet so that they wouldn't upset their parents and you know they miss their brother too carrie used to watch the sky for a shooting star so that he could wish on it and bring his brother home Mm. that just makes me sad a child sweet and innocent yeah nothing from his parents is like my only option here is to look at the sky and wish for my brother wish for my brother to come home He felt guilty because he should have been with his brother to take him home as if his mom couldn't get there. Because he was the older brother, yeah. Yeah, so he felt the guilt from that. That I don't know, but it just seems like a miserable childhood from all of them. Everybody is suffering in this house. Right. Poor kids. So back to the boys with the police. The next day on March 2nd, 1980, Parnell was arrested. Good. When they looked into Parnell's background, they found a previous sodomy conviction from 1951. So who is this bastard? Yeah. Kenneth Eugene Parnell was born September 26, 1931 in Amarillo, Texas. He was born during the region's Dust Bowl era during the Great Depression. His father abandoned them when Parnell was six years old. And later in life, he moved with his mother, two half-sisters, and a half-brother to Bakersfield, California. Okay. Bakersfield. I've been there. It's I have not. Nothing to be excited about. <laughs> just say that. It's better than Amarillo, Texas. I can guarantee that. I don't know. Let's compare. Anybody been to both? Let me know. His mother operated a boarding lodge there. He was raised mostly without his father. So he was a bit of a lost kid. Yeah. It's not confirmed, but he does claim that he was molested at the age of 13 by one of the guests staying at this lodge. Makes sense. He was in and out of juvenile custody for arson and car theft. But as with most sickos, it typically starts with these petty crimes when they're young. So arson especially. Yeah, that's a scary one. Mm -hmm. Fire in general is scary. Yeah, if your child is obsessed with fire. I mean, I know children like fire, but like obsessed with it and setting shit on fire Mm -hmm. all the time. You got a problem. I know. My daughter keeps getting these things from people because of her little witchcrafty stuff. (laughs) And they'll include candles and I immediately take them from her. (laughs) Because she's a fire bug. Like you said. They're all. It's it's interesting. Fire is beautiful. We like fire. I'm burning things now every day. But but if you're like, "Mm, I wonder what this wall would look like on fire. Right. It's different. But in 1949, he married 15-year-old Patsy Jo Dorton. 15? 15. Damn. I couldn't find their marriage date, but that would have made him 17 or 18 at the time. So it's not a huge difference. That was of the time again. Yeah. At the age of 19, in March of 1951, Parnell was arrested for raping a little boy. Oh, no. He impersonated a police officer. He bought a deputy sheriff's badge at an Army-Navy surplus store. He was sentenced to four years in prison. Good. He escaped at one point, but was recaptured. Okay. You could also escape more Easier easily back then. Back then yeah, didn't Ted Bundy get out like two or three times? <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> when questioned why he kidnapped and molested that boy, which is stupid. Why do you do this? Because I'm fucked up. <laughs> like, Why does anybody do that? But he said at the time his wife was pregnant and he needed an outlet. 
So go, it becomes a boy instead of having an affair with another say, woman. Go hire a hooker, like do a normal, like what the actual adult puck. man would do if you're that desperate for sex. Or you know what? You have a hand. Fucking yes. masturbate, dude. Well, and I'm so fucking tired of men, whiny men, when their wives are pregnant. I know. They're growing an actual child in yes. their body. Like, think about this. We're incubators. Right. There's babies growing. Yes. You're a fucking baby at that. You know, it's the man I that. Know. And so many women get cheated on as pregnant women because they're like, well, I've got needs. And it's like, what are you? Do you have no self-control? Mm-hmm. You've got needs. Well, then jack off. Like, I've got needs, too, that you're not meeting, dude. And yeah, it's not sexual. Exactly. <laughs> it's taking care of me, not going out and cheating on me because you have to get off every day or you go crazy. Like, yeah. what are they? They are like Neanderthals. It's gross. His daughter was born later that year. A daughter. It's probably honestly better than a son. He probably would have molested his son. I know. But he and Patsy Joe divorced in 1957. I wonder why. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, could you imagine being married to a man that was arrested for raping a child? I'd be like, you're never touching me again. Yep. And I don't want to talk to you ever again in my life. Instantaneously. Mm-hmm. Sorry. We're done. And I hope you're in prison forever. You're not and that who you I rot. thought you were. Goodbye. Yeah. I want you to rot in a prison cell forever and stay away from kids. But he's good at manipulating and being fake and all that. So yeah. he married again that same year. Oh, my God. <laughs> got her pregnant and he Uh, had another daughter again not a little boy i wonder if he was trying to have a boy like oh well maybe there's a reason why he didn't the universe was like no no you don't get a little boy no because then that'll be the real perpetual cycle yes oh my god nearly a decade after the sodomy charged he was convicted of armed robbery in utah his second wife divorced him then. Yeah. He said that he married a third time in 1968, <laughs> but I couldn't find record of that marriage. That's because that woman's embarrassed and she doesn't <laughs> want us to know. Overall, he had three children. So I'm guessing that the third was this mystery woman. Okay. Either way, he either left or abandoned his family because by the time he found Stephen, he was alone. Yeah. So I don't know what happened with the third one. And how old was he when he picked up Stephen? Did you ever say? I don't remember. He would have been about 41, I think. Midlife crisis. (laughs) Although he's been having crisis for a while. Yeah. He's messed up. I didn't want to spend too much time on him, but that was his life leading up to this. Going back to the boys again, at first, Stephen did not mention any sexual assault by Parnell. He was embarrassed. And he's older now. Yeah. Like he's been going through it for seven years. He's probably come to terms with it in a lot of different ways. But he knows it wasn't right. That's why he saved the other child. Exactly. In fact, he was asked on camera, like if he was ever touched or anything had happened and Stephen would flat out say no, like none of that happened. For a while, people thought that Parnell, when he was arrested, was just a messed up guy who wanted sons. And this was his way of getting that. People actually thought that back then when he was initially arrested. Poor guy. He just wanted kids. But he'd already been arrested for raping a child. Nobody so, knew that. Oh, uh, because those things weren't yeah. out. Okay. But sweet Timmy was so tiny. He is so tiny. I watched Aww. an interview with him and someone was like trying to ask him questions about what happened. Just imagine this tiny little five-year-old mm-hmm. just kind of looking up at this guy interviewing him with his mouth kind of gaped open and being like, you know, like kind of smiling yeah. like he's on camera. Right. He was a little nervous. He had the silly little smile on his face and just staring up at this guy who was talking to him. And just every time he would give a yes or a no, like with these big nods, 
he kept his innocence. So that's how you know. Good. Thankfully, nothing yeah. really bad happened to him. Steven saved him before. Steven saved him. It might have happened sooner if it was just Timmy with True. him. But I think having the presence of the two boys in the home. Yes. It took longer. Like he knew he would have to groom him in a different way than maybe he did Steven. Yeah. Because it wasn't just the two of them. But when searching his property, searching Parnell's property, the police found pornographic photos of Stephen when he was younger. So things started to come to light. In 1981, Parnell was tried and convicted for kidnapping Timmy and Stephen. They were two separate trials. He was sentenced to seven years for abducting Timmy. Okay. Everyone thought for sure that he would get life or at least a lot more for what he did to Stephen. Uh, yes. Stephen testified and was very nervous. He didn't want to testify or see Parnell. Right. Stephen tried to stay void of emotion and just answered the questions. But for Stephen, he received only seven months. What? what? Yeah. Seven months. Our system is so fucked. One month for each year he had Stephen. When the verdict was read, Stephen ran out of the courtroom. He had been through so much. That would be so heartbreaking. His abuser pretty much got nothing. And then he has to be afraid of this guy coming back for vengeance now because he testified against him. They might have as well just left him alone so he didn't have to go through this. Right. Timmy's trial could have been the only one if they were going to do this. Stephen didn't want to talk about his abuse. No. And they made him. Oh, my God. Poor thing. And this is what is sick. Parnell claimed to have raped Stephen more than 4,000 times. Oh, my God. While he had him. Do the math on that. 4,000 times in seven years. Seven years. That's more than once a day the entire time he had with him. And some of these times he was traveling. Remember, he wasn't even He was making up for lost time when he came home. Mm -hmm. This is like the Ariel Castro thing. You don't even understand how men are capable of this. Yeah. And this poor kid tried to act like a normal kid to everybody else. And this is what he was dealing with at home in this one room shack in the middle of nowhere. That's like all he was doing with him when he was home then. But they didn't charge Parnell with sexually assaulting Stephen at all. Why? What? Because these offenses happened in another county. Oh, and because the majority of his assaults were outside the statute of limitations. They charged the maximum for Timmy and considered his sentence for that when coming up with the time that he would have to serve for Stephen. That's so messed up. Seven months? Months. That's (laughs) like what you get for having like a little bit of marijuana in your car or something. Like this guy kidnapped a child and kept them in his house for seven fucking years. Mm -hmm. He's a threat to society because the whole point of punishment is to put people away who are a threat to society. And that is not fitting the crime. This guy's a threat to society. So seven months is not going to reform him. It's not even close to what the sentence should be. But thankfully, like we said, Timmy, we believe, was not sexually assaulted. And if you saw his interview, you would agree. Because I think he would have been much more reserved, like, right. uh, as a five-year-old, especially. Right, exactly. And he was kind of giggling. And he's like, people are asking me questions. <laughs> yeah. This is weird. And he wasn't at his house very long. No. And this is all thanks to Stephen. But still, right. it's just insane. Almost as if Stephen's older age was brought into it. Which like was he was annoying. consenting to exactly. it? Fuck off. That's right. You know that was part of it. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. And also because of how Stephen was talking. They were like, well, obviously it was fine. I didn't or he would have said up. something, you know? <laughs> this is, you know, people sitting on a jury that don't know enough about sexual crimes. That and just their weird rules. But I think he should have at least gotten seven years. Yeah. The exact same amount that he right. had to go through. Seven years should have been the minimum. Right. It makes no sense. 
And this was his third convicted kidnapping case. Like, this guy's going to keep doing it. He's going to do it again. Right. And you're giving him seven years and seven months, which he's not going to do all of. No, because he'll get out for parole because it sounds like he's a very good gaslighter. Poor guy. He just wanted kids. I just wanted to have kids. That's all. I mean, I touch them sometimes. He had pictures. (laughs) Like, they had proof. They had physical proof. Oh, he was just naked all the time. I was just taking pictures of him. We're just just a little boy. Yeah. He just got out of the bathtub. Uh, but what about the other people that we know helped him? So okay. we have a couple here. Murphy, the man who convinced Stephen to get in the car in the first place. Yeah. He was convicted to five years, but served only two. He got five years for just... <laughs> See, he's getting more. That's what I'm saying. This than is the captor. Our justice system is so fucked. fucked. And this is a man that everybody agrees was kind of simple. Right. right? He was manipulated, probably offered money or drugs or whatever. I think in the beginning, he believed the whole religious story. I want a boy for good reasons, not nefarious. And I'm sure it took some time. It was more about, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is good work. And then at the last second was like, what? I need a little boy to make (laughs) this come to light. And he's like, uh. That seems weird. "Hmm, Okay, but I'll help you. Poorman, the younger kid who helped him kidnap Timmy, he was convicted as well, but I'm not sure of how, how long. long. The woman, Barbara Mateus, oh, yeah. was never charged, of course. Murphy and Poorman both claimed that they had no idea that this would lead to sexual assaults. I don't believe that. Grown men don't steal little boys to raise them. No. Come yeah. on. Any man wanting a child for any reason like that, you know, I just don't believe it for a sick purpose. But Stephen did say that he remembered Murphy kindly and he felt that he was himself a victim of manipulation. That's yeah. how he remembers Murphy. OK, so Murphy had nothing to do with any of the sick stuff after that. He was with Parnell and Stephen the first week of his captivity, but didn't see anything. And Stephen just remembers him being really kind. Okay. So, but what happened with Stephen? So he's with the police. Mm -hmm. They found out who he was. He should have just gone home. Right. Right. But Stephen was interviewed on TV before he saw his family again. So this is a really weird situation. Yeah. Because these were two abducted children. And they're like putting cameras in their face. Weird. Right. They were actually reunited in front of cameras. That's so that weird was too. also weird. Yeah. Most kidnapping cases that end in the child being brought back, they're not publicized in no. this way. Yet for whatever reason, Stephen and Timmy's cases were. Mm-hmm. The reunion was emotional for everyone, as it would be. It's been seven right. years for yeah. Stephen. He was meeting his siblings again, too, and they've mm-hmm. all grown up. His younger sister was four when he was taken, and now she's this big kid. Right. And he's like, oh, who are you? He hasn't seen them. He was 14, and on camera, he was pretty shy and calm, but almost assertive. But he did have Queenie. He did not oh, leave good. her behind, the little puppy. She came with them when they escaped. So that's a lot. He's carrying he's this carrying little a kid. Dog. He has a dog. He did that's a lot that him. day. He's like, I'm not leaving my pup. No, she didn't do anything. No. For all you know, Parnell could have hurt the dog as right. vengeance or whatever. Mm-hmm. After this, he did multiple interviews and they followed him even into high school on his first day. Like, leave it was him alone, a little guys. Much. He has nothing else to tell you guys. Right. About, right. But life back with his parents was not easy. 
Mm. It wasn't as loving as a return as you'd hope for. On right. camera, yeah, they loved him. They missed him. It was emotional. Mm-hmm. With Parnell, though, even with the molestation, he had this level of freedom. Oh, yeah. He could smoke, drink, pretty much do anything that he wanted. Right. And at home, he did have trouble adjusting. It was this strict, structured household. He left a seven-year-old boy and he returned almost a grown man. Right. And they can't adjust to that either, the parents. Right. And with seven years of experience, it made him a man very young. Yeah. But they treat him like a child. Mm -hmm. They weren't, especially his father, was not adjusting to the fact that he had grown up. Right. In an interview after he had been home for a little while, he actually said, after they stopped trying to teach me the fundamentals all over again, it got better. Okay. But why doesn't my dad hug me anymore? Everything has changed. Sometimes I blame myself. I don't know sometimes if I should have come home. Oh, wow. Would it have been better off if I didn't? But it was also all of these interviews that added to his stress. Yeah. And his family's lives. Like they stressed the entire family out. It was nonstop. At one point on camera, Stephen says, I was hoping people would just forget about it. Yeah, we don't need it. That's what I'm saying. You don't need to talk about it over and over. He's already told his story. They would even go back to his high school, like on the high school campus. You can't do this today, but they would right. go back to his high school and wait for him to get out of one class and stop him in front of all the other students Why? between classes. Like, what are they looking for? Never had a break. Yeah, that would suck. Yeah. Like, I just don't understand the media attention. Like, what do they think they're going to get by talking to him every single day? day like he went through enough leave him alone right but there's nothing else nothing else going on it's a slow news cycle right (laughs) it is a smaller city i don't know he underwent very brief counseling for everything but there was no additional treatment offered to him in the beginning after his return home he didn't talk to his family about the sexual abuse i mentioned or to the cops but one day the cops arrived with the photos that they found oh, shit. in Parnell's home and showed his father. Oh, no. It wasn't good. After that, his father pretty much ignored it. His father said that he didn't need any more counseling and Stephen had no way of seeking help himself. He, like even Stephen himself, was convinced, though, that he didn't need it as well. But he was still, yes, he's, he's almost a grown man, right. but he's still a teenager. He needed that. Everybody needs counseling. I've said this many times. We all have shit. His mother, on the other hand, wished he had talked about it more. This is later in life. But anytime she tried to approach him about it, he wouldn't talk about it. He's not going to talk about it with his mom or his dad. She also recognizes it wasn't all bad. He had a life for seven years. He had friends. He was allowed to do what he wanted. And she wanted to know that part of him. She's like, tell me the good parts. Because you lived a life for seven years. And I want to know where my baby's been. You don't have to tell me all about that but he would often zone out and sometimes the only way they could get his attention was to say Dennis because he was Dennis for seven years okay so that's why I had trouble in the beginning I'm like I'm gonna call him Steven but Dennis was half of his identity yeah so you would have to transition back very disorienting to Steven yeah which he wasn't called for a really long time it was hard But when specifics about his sexual abuse was brought to light during Parnell's trial, media outlets did not hold back. Oh, no. They wanted to know every sordid detail. Why do they do this to victims? How exactly were you assaulted? Oh, my God. And they wouldn't let it be. When they found out, they released all the details to the public. Oh, my God. It's sick. 
Why do you need to know exactly Why? how a child is molested? Like you can imagine, okay, if you really want to imagine or if you want to know all the details, then I think you're fucking sick. Yeah. Like seriously, I don't want to hear any of it. Why do you want to hear intimate detail step by step? It's horrible enough. You're fucked if you want to yeah. hear that. And it is this weird fucked up thing that a lot of people do. Yes. A lot. Stephen became a target of derogatory labels at school. Oh, no. Which became homophobic slurs. Oh, my and God. Like, uh, they were just horrible to it. him. Yeah. Kids became so mean once they found out what he actually went through. That's so sad. This poor kid. Kids can be mean. Kids are horrible. As, and this was back in the 70s, 80s or mm-hmm. whatever. I even remember growing up in the 80s and 90s, like homophobic slurs were used against boys all the time. That was like the worst thing you could call another boy. Right. It, it's not as fall he's a child he was, he was seven it's not like he, yeah anyway it's just rough he began medicating with alcohol and marijuana again yeah heavily he took pills he started to act out he also started dating a lot probably to put these the rumors bullies. down yeah he's like no i like girls yeah and then, yeah leave me alone mm-hmm. look at how much i can get yeah exactly which is sad because he's just like it's not like he wants them he's just doing it to try and prove right. something just unable to deal with this constant bullying and at some point it got so bad that he did drop out mm-hmm. but after dropping out of school Stephen got a job at a butcher shop and he met a girl named jody edmondson and he fell in love with her Aww. she was 16 she was the one to snag him okay calmed him down which is funny to say because he was already very calm she said that one of the things that caught her attention was this he was eerily calm okay but he liked her and he just blatantly went up to her one day and was like can I go on a date with you (laughs) (laughs) confidence yeah ladies like that they were together since then In 1985, he married Jody, and they went on to have two children, a daughter, Ashley Luella, and a son, Stephen Jr. I like Luella. And he was a great father. He completely turned his life around for his family. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. So at least Stephen found some happiness with his wife, but just a year after he was married, Parnell was paroled. Oh, shit. For everything. Shit, shit, shit. This was just five years into his sentence. I don't understand. <laughs> I don't at all. It's only a matter of time. These people do not stop. No, I'm not. Like, he was probably already plotting in right. prison when he gets out where he's going to get another boy. Yep. But Stephen did his best to move on. With his growing family, he did what he could to create a loving home he never had and to help others. Aw. He worked with child abduction groups and spoke with children about personal safety. Good. He also joined the Mormon church, which I thought was a little twist in this, but it made him happy nonetheless. In 1989, he was working at a pizza shop and going to law enforcement classes. Okay. That year, a miniseries and a movie was released about his experience titled, I Know My First Name is Steven. So okay. that's why I said it in the beginning. He was all for this movie and he saw it as a way to support his family, but also as a way to get hard truths out there. Okay. It was his therapy. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, he didn't really want to talk about it. Right. But as he grew up, yeah, he's like, he's all right. Older, he's an adult man. It's like. Right. It's his story after yes. all. It was his choice and he was very happy with the outcome of it. Good. He even had a cameo playing the cops. If you go watch it, when Stephen is coming home and he gets out of the car, one of the cops kind of holding him and ushering him through the crowd is Stephen himself. Okay. He gave a lot of interviews for this movie. The movie itself, as all movies do when covering a true story, tell a lot of lies throughout. So there are things that didn't actually happen. Yeah, they have to embellish it. Right. Or they changed how people met and people are shown in different lights, all to make the story more interesting. Right. 
but his father in real life hated the movie. Okay. Kate also did it first. She watched it once, but really she just kind of chucked it up to, that's Hollywood for you. They're going to change everything. (laughs) But you know, it's affected their family. Neither of his parents wanted this movie out there, but Stephen wanted it to happen. It it's was his, his story. Yeah, it's so. his life. So sorry, guys. If you don't like how you were portrayed, I'm guessing that's part of it. Yeah. But it was a good time in Stephen and his family's life because they got to go on set. They got to okay. watch everything, meet everybody. It was an experience. Yeah. The movie was aired on TV in a two-part series, and 40 million people tuned in. Wow. It aired May 22nd and 23rd of 1989. Okay. It was a big deal, because this wasn't the time for streaming. No, I remember all these, like, big miniseries when I was a kid. I was, like, nine at that age. I don't remember this miniseries, but other ones. You had to be home to watch it. Right. Exactly. (laughs) And you had to, like, and they would usually do it over weeks or whatever, so you'd see the first part, and then you had to wait till the next week to see the second. These were two days. Okay, right together. It was nominated for four Emmy Awards later that year. Wow. Before that, he received $30,000 from the movie for the rights to his story. Okay. And he used part of that money to purchase a 1989 Kawasaki EX500 bike, (laughs) something he really wanted. Yeah. And he was finally able to get. But life is never as promised. Oh, no. And it took a really sad turn for Steven. On September 16th, 1989, he was riding home from the pizza shop. It was a rainy night. He wasn't wearing a helmet. Mm. He would have been, but it was stolen several days before that. He was hit by a 1976 (gasps) Plymouth Volare. It was a hit and run. Someone sped through a stop sign. He was left on the street to die from head wounds. He was only 24 years old. Oh, my God. He died after all that. Such a tragic life. He was so young. This poor child, man. Wow. To make it even more tragic, his little sister, Corey, saw him. She didn't know it at the time, but she was on her way to work and she saw the whole accident. Oh, my God. And found out later that it was him and he died on the scene. They mm-hmm. lost him again. Yeah. His poor family, regardless of his everything wife that happened. And daughter. Yeah. His kids were yeah. still so young. They were only one in three years old. Oh, my God. And once again, Stephen wasn't spoken about within his family for some time, especially with his children. Right. Twice in his life. He's there. And then he's gone. And then he's gone. And then people don't want to talk about it. And then dad can't handle it. Yeah. Mom can't handle it. Kids can't. It doesn't matter. Just right. This poor kid's life. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you have to stop and think something about this happened for a reason because this is right. almost too much tragedy for one person to endure. Right. Oh, my God. And he died the night before the Emmys. Oh, so he literally didn't the night before the Emmys. It won Emmy. It didn't win an Emmy, but everyone, he died the night before. So everyone that was there to celebrate this and that was nominated and everything, they're like, we have to win. He just died. (laughs) Oh, my God. And they didn't win. So it was kind of a weird, sad thing. Yeah. 500 people attended his funeral. He had maintained contact with Timmy and his family this entire time. And Timmy was 14 at the time, which is strange because 14 was the time that Stephen left to save Timmy. And Timmy was one of his pallbearers. Okay. Putting to rest his rescuer. Right. It's so sad. I know. That was like his hero. And he was buried next to his grandparents in the Merced District Cemetery. So Stephen's passed and his perpetrator is out free doing God knows what. Is he still alive? We're going to come to him. Okay. We're going to come to him right now. (laughs) Speak of the devil. Just in case you can hear my kitty coming through, she is meowing and purring and doing all the things she can to get my attention right now. <laughs> so if you hear her come through as a... <laughs> there she is. <laughs> but I'm trying to get this done, Safira. Stop. Shh. 
I love you. Goodbye. <laughs> it was just a matter of time before he did something. So in 2003, he was 71 years old. And he still wasn't and never stopped. At the time, he was suffering from diabetes and emphysema. He had a stroke the year before, and he was under 24-hour-a-day nursing care at his apartment in Berkeley, California. And he's still going to find a way? That did not stop him. What the fuck? He tried using his manipulation one more time. He tried coercing his caregiver's sister, Diane Stephen, into helping him buy a four-year-old. Buy? Yes. For it's $500. Scary that there's a place to buy them. Okay. And this is 2003. Diane, Fuck. even though she was unaware of his past, immediately reported him. Good. Good for you, Diane. <laughs> she cooperated with police in setting up this sting operation that led to his arrest. She testified that Parnell requested a little boy with, quote, a clean rectum. Oh, my God. He paid $100 for a fake birth certificate and had $400 ready to go to pay the person who would help him complete the transaction for receiving the child. The sting was set up for January 3rd, 2003. And he was arrested that day. A little over a year later, on February 9th, 2004, he was convicted. Good. Even though he hadn't actually targeted a specific child, right. the prosecution successfully argued that He's a fucking look danger. at his fucking past yeah. and proof from what they found in his apartment, which of course included child pornography. His intentions were very clear. You're right. He tried to argue that he just wanted a family again. I'm like, dude, you've been doing this forever. I have two words. <laughs> I have two words for this guy. It's called chemical castration. Mm -hmm. Get him out. Like if he wants to, if you don't want to put him in prison or any man that it's right. always men, any man that does anything to a child, I feel like chemical castration because yeah. they're never going to stop. Obviously the guy's fucking 71 years old. Right. He's like on his deathbed and still like, I need a little boy to do what I want to. Oh my God. It's gross. He was sentenced to 25 years to life under California's new three strikes law. Okay. This law was actually put in place because of Stephen. So he did get a little bit of justice here. Stephen's case and the coverage that it had prompted California lawmakers to change state laws to allow consecutive prison terms in similar abduction cases. Good. So even though he didn't serve the time for what he did to Stephen... A law was changed, and because of Stephen, now he's finally being given the sentence that he should have had a long right. time ago, but it required catching him again. That's what sucks. And what happened between the time he got out and he was 71 years old? There's probably other stuff we don't How even do know about. Know? How do we know? Right. That's like 20 years. Yes. And obviously, he wasn't ever going to stop. I'm sure there's other victims, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Parnell remained incarcerated until his death five years later. Okay. He died January 21st, 2008 at the age of 76. Good riddance. It does piss me off because he got to live a really long life. Right. And Stephen died very young. After Stephen, everything yeah. he went through, he was only 24 years old. Stephen lived this tragic, just one thing after another kind of life. Yeah. And this piece of shit gets to live like he did. And he wasn't murdered. He died of natural causes. Yeah. Just old age. Damn. So that's it. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, we're not even close to being fucking done. It's not it. That's not it. Oh, God. Because okay. tragedy continues. Oh, thanks. Keep bringing it to this nice white <laughs> tail. <laughs> so let's go back to Stephen's family. Oh, specifically okay. his brother, Carrie. 
because there's another twist in this story. Uh Uh-oh. So we're just going to talk about the children's lives a little bit. We did touch on some stuff, but let's go back to Carrie. Okay. When Carrie was three years old, he was diagnosed with trichotillomania, which is compulsive hair pulling. Oh, okay. This led to bald spots and he would wear hats trying to hide it. Yeah. Living in the home that he did, which was already void of family affection, Mm -hmm. he felt isolated. He was put on medication, but it continued to affect him during his high school years. Having the bald spots he had, he was severely bullied Uh at times in high school. He was always wearing a baseball cap in hopes that when passing other kids, they might forget, oh, he's the kid that has these bald spots. spots. He was very much a loner and an introvert, but even with that, he was a really good artist. He drew cartoons for the school newspaper. And his graduating class at Merced High School chose him as the most creative. Okay. And he was also intelligent. He accelerated in classes. When Stephen was taken, Carrie was 11 years old. Okay. Really young. We know that his parents pulled back from him even more. Right. It was a rough seven years for him. He felt invisible. His only reprieve was his drawing, and he had a great relationship with his uncle Jerry, supposedly. Okay. But when Stephen came home... He was even more in Stephen's shadow. Oh. Carrie grew resentful. Oh, shit. He was jealous of the attention Stephen was receiving. And it wasn't just him. His sisters also admitted to feeling a bit jealous. Okay. Because Stephen was a hero. And he was getting all the press and... The press. He got gifts, clothes from all sorts of people. It's like, but Stephen didn't want all that, I'm sure. No, he didn't. But I get it. It's their kids, too. Yeah. He was honored at events, too. He was this celebrity. Right. And for seven years, he wasn't there. In a way, it was all about him when he was gone. But with him back, it was even more so. Yeah. But Carrie was more than jealous. He was he was just different altogether. He was off. Okay. When Stephen died, so moving forward, when Stephen died, it was difficult for him. And sadly, a year later in December of 1990, his uncle Jerry was murdered. Oh, Murdered. Yeah, he was shot and killed by a home invader. Oh, shit. He was shot with his own gun, too. Mm -hmm. The case was never solved. That killed Carrie. Yeah. And in 1991, Carrie attempted suicide. He tried gassing himself to death with carbon monoxide. Okay. But he did not succeed. Several years later, in 1995, he was admitted to a mental institution after a nervous breakdown. He left after only a few hours of treatment, though. Well, that didn't fix anything. Nobody in this family (laughs) is getting any help. Let's just put it that way. Like, the whole family needs to be checked into a a therapeutic hospital for, like, a month. Every single one of them. The girls. Everybody needs help. Everybody's fucked. They lost a family member for seven years. He came back. It was fucked up then. And then he tragically dies. It's fucked up. All of it's fucked up. How do you process that? People need help. So he was not okay Mm -hmm. because what no one knew is Carrie himself was harboring a very deep secret. Oh, no. From a very young age, before Stephen was even taken, a young six or seven year old Carrie had horrific fantasies. Uh Oh, he Uh. fantasized about abducting and murdering women. Oh, shit. From his own mouth. He said this. How a child so young thinks about things like this is a, a mind fuck. That's so scary that it starts that young. I know, but he claims it to be true. 
The abduction of his brother surely added to this rage inside of him, but it did not start it. Okay. We can't know when he learned of sex, beatings, or just in general that, oh, you can treat another human being this way. I mean, he may have seen his dad hurting his sisters. I don't know. We don't know what happened in that home. Some fucked up stuff. But somehow he came to have fantasies about this, about even women being gang raped. He was aware of some of this. And how... How were they? This was well before he was a teenager. And how in the seventies he's having these fantasies before it's all over the internet now. Like you can look at this stuff. Like for him to have that, like Mm -hmm. what would have fed that? He had to. You think you would have had to see something, or is it just something that some men are born with this innate interest? Yeah. It continued. At one point, one of his sisters had a friend staying the night and he exposed himself to her. Oh, no. That's also a weird thing. It's like, ooh, look at my little thing. I'm like, why? I feel like this is a sign. This happens more than you think. It does. And what are they doing now? Those people. Because this seems to be one of the ingredients. It's like a start, <laughs> starting point. To show yourself to people. It's like we talked about that with what's his name? Uh, I-5 Killer. And yeah. it's just this shock. They want that shock value from the girl. Mm-hmm. The signs were there, but with his parents so emotionally distant, who would have noticed? And after graduating from high school, he worked as a window installer. Okay. He supposedly fantasized about ramming a truck into the glass company he worked for and killing everyone and setting it on fire. I mean, normal things. (laughs) I mean, he was troubled from the very beginning. In 1997, he was arrested for possession of marijuana and methamphetamines. The charges were dropped. I'm not a proponent of arresting people for marijuana. No. But meth, maybe, yeah. They should have, though. Meth's a big deal. Meth, but still, people can get, you know, sucked into that. That doesn't mean they're bad people. True. You but just this guy actually help. was a bad person. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I wish they had. He had odd jobs for a while before he was hired as a handyman for the Cedar Lodge Motel in El Portel, California in 1997. Oh no, now he is going to have opportunity. This motel was just outside of the Highway 140 entrance to Yosemite National Park. Oh shit, don't stay there. (laughs) It was during his time at this motel that things went very wrong. Mm. In February of 1999, three tourists staying at the motel went missing. Oh no. This was 42-year-old Carol's son. That's like my age. Her 15-year-old daughter, Juliana, or Julie Sund. That's close to my kid's age. (laughs) That's me. This is you right now. (laughs) We're talking about you and your kid. (laughs) And a foreign Argentina exchange student slash family friend that was with them, 16-year-old Silvina Peloso. Oh, my God. They were there to visit different colleges and go to Yosemite. Go to Yosemite. Enjoy the national park. Carrie Stainer, as we know, had this troubled life. There is no doubt about that, but in his adulthood, he became a literal monster. A serial killer. On February 15th, 1999, Carrie went to the motel room of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. And he was a maintenance guy, right? So he had keys. Yes. Room 509. He claimed that there was a plumbing issue that he needed to fix, a leak that was coming from the upstairs room. Being that he was with the motel, they didn't think anything of it and let him in. Yeah. But the truth was, he was laid off for the winter off season, and he was currently actually not working at the time. When he was let in and the door closed, he pulled out a 22 caliber pistol. He claimed that he was there to rob them. Okay. He bound and duct taped them. He put the younger girls in the bathroom. He strangled Carol and shot her. He pulled Sylvina out of the bathroom next. He raped her, strangled her, and shot her. 
And then he spent several hours sexually assaulting Julie before slashing her throat. Oh, my God. This is Stephen's brother. Okay. So. (laughs) Remember Stephen. Now this is his brother. uh They were reported missing at first. Over a month later, on March 18th, 1999, Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso were found burned in the trunk of Carol's charred Pontiac rental car about 50 miles from the motel. Okay. They were burned beyond recognition and were only identified using dental records. Mm-hmm. Julie, Carol's daughter, was still missing. I guess after finding out that the two victims were found, he wanted to make sure that they found Julie too. So a week later, Carrie wrote into the police pretending that it was more than one perpetrator responsible. At the top of the note, it said, we had fun with this one. What? Below it was just a hand-drawn map of where they could find Julie's remains. They followed this map and found Julie near the Don Pedro Reservoir Overlook. Okay. She was wrapped in a pink blanket that came from Cedar Lodge. Mm Mm-hmm. Knowing that the three were staying at Cedar Lodge prior to their disappearance, the police started interviewing everyone from the motel, including Carrie. Okay. Carrie was written off, of course. Because he didn't work there at the time, right? Well, he was just off for the off season. So it's not like he was fired. Okay. And he had no previous crimes. He had nothing on his record. That's what they always, yeah. Also, most people knew him and enjoyed him. He was part of this motel family, part of the community. Okay. They had no idea that he was an actual monster. And now a serial killer. Right. And they all have to start somewhere. They don't have a record the first time they do it. Mm -hmm. He was not a suspect. And he even told them about Stephen. So he's like, oh, you know, my brother. Sympathy that way. Right. And he was helpful in letting the FBI into all the rooms. Oh, such a nice guy. Such a nice guy. So he was getting away with it for now. Mm -hmm. Authorities started rounding up known rapists murderers, attempted murderers that were on parole in the area, and actually zeroed in on two brothers. Okay. (laughs) They told the community, all is good. Come back to Yosemite. Mm -hmm. We got the guys. I'm guessing Carrie's nudge to it being more than one person worked. Helped, yeah. But these two were wrongfully accused. Eventually, they were let go once they realized that it was the wrong people. But sounds like they were just arresting bad people anyway, kind of. (laughs) They had something that, yeah. (laughs) yeah. Four months later, on July 21st, Carrie drove to Forrester Road in Yosemite National Park. He was obsessed with this area because he was obsessed with Bigfoot, and he claims to have seen Bigfoot there. Okay. So if you go to Yosemite, look out for Bigfoot, I guess. Well, there are the big trees everywhere, so I'll let you know if I find him. But he was always talking about this Bigfoot encounter. Okay. It was his thing. So just obsessed, being alone in Yosemite. That was his comfort place. Okay. But while up there, he stopped at a creek one day and he saw a little cabin and he was skipping rocks in the creek and he noticed a girl coming Uh in and out of the home. She was packing up her car, Mm -hmm. about to go somewhere. He watched her for a while and realized that she was alone. This was young 26-year-old Joey Armstrong. Okay. She was a naturalist and ran educational programs for children at Yosemite National Park. He approached her and they started talking about Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. But quickly, when she turned around one second, he put a gun up to her head and took her inside. He bound her with duct tape and then he took her back outside, forced her into his car, which was a 1972 pale blue International Scout. Have you seen those? No. It kind of looks like like a Bronco. We're in the 1990s now and he's got a 20-something-year-old car. Yeah. 25-year-old car at this point. Right. Yeah. 
Somehow along the drive, she wiggled her way out of the window. Oh, damn. Fell to the ground and started running. Fuck yeah, girl. But he had planned to have fun with her and he didn't expect her to fight. So mm-hmm. he quickly caught up to her and he slit her throat. Oh, but that's probably better for her than he anything. Get to torture her. Right, exactly. But damn, she but, was so close. She, if she had just run into the woods. But they already are in the woods oh. and this is his play area. Yeah. He knows the place. This is where oh. he comes and relaxes. So creepy. He went further and he decapitated her. Oh, my God. But he wouldn't get away this time. Okay, good. He was ready to kill Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. Right, so he knew what he was going to do. But with Joey, it was pure impulse. Right. He couldn't fight the urge to kill her. And he left a lot of evidence and he did everything in a rush. Yeah. When Joey was reported missing by her friends, who she was supposed to meet up with for a short trip, cops went to her cabin, found broken things. There was obviously some kind of struggle. There was also this mechanic's hat was that was there that wasn't hers. Okay. And there were heavy tire tracks leaving the property. And it didn't take them long because they found her beheaded body close by her house. Right. Near a stream. It was about a half a mile from the cabin and found her head a few feet away in the stream. I can't imagine finding that. I know. The murder was released to the public and they didn't have a suspect yet at this time. Okay. But someone called in and mentioned seeing Carrie's truck around the area at the same time. Mm. So they went looking for him. Yeah. They asked around this small community and it was identified. Okay. Yes, that's Carrie. Yes, that's his car. Where right. is he? When they first started looking for him, they just thought he might have witnessed something. So okay. they weren't thinking of him as the killer. Mm hmm. Interestingly, he was already in their custody. For what? Because once again, he was arrested for smoking marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) But they didn't know this at the time. And he was released because of a clerical error the next morning. Okay. Once released, he immediately started packing up. Yeah. He knew he left way too much evidence with Joey's murder. And he left that day, July 23rd. And he headed to a nudist colony in Wilton, California, called Laguna del Sol. Okay. (laughs) Just two hours north of Yosemite. Okay. I don't know if it's still there. I wasn't planning to visit, but. (laughs) (laughs) You never know. I might check it out now. I mean. But he got there to live in a little tent. It didn't last long. I was just thinking he'd be off the grid there. Right. Now aware that they had him in their custody and lost him and that he left in a hurry, Mm -hmm. he was now a suspect. Uh, Yeah. They announced that he was wanted for questioning via media and that he might be naked. (laughs) Did you, were you going to say he might be naked? Might be dangerous. Oh, (laughs) Dangerous and naked. (laughs) I mean, it's a perfect place for him. He just wants to expose himself. By the way, he might be naked. (laughs) By the way, (laughs) if you find him, he might be naked. Don't be alarmed because he's a nudist now. (laughs) You're going to see some things you may not want to (laughs) see. One woman, Janet DeMont, she saw this bolo and she was at a small bar in this nudist community. It was on the property. So they had some cool things there. But I don't want to sit on a bar stool. Exactly. (laughs) I just thought of that. I'm like. Do you guys bring your own seating pads everywhere you go? Like, I don't want to sit on that after somebody else just sat there. Ew. Ew. Because that includes where you go to the bathroom. Some people can't clean themselves that well. Thank you. (laughs) Anyway, while she was sitting there at the bar, Carrie approached her and started a conversation. And later she called the FBI and let them know, hey, that dude's here. Oh, right now. So the FBI headed to the colony on July 24th, 1999. The manager of the bar came out and met with the two FBI agents. The agents were Jeff Reinick and John Bowles. The manager said, yeah, he's inside sitting in a corner booth and you'll be able to find him because he's the only one wearing clothes. (laughs) So he did not embrace it. He did not embrace it yet. 
I bet you it's because he didn't know how much time he had. And he's like, well, I can't be that vulnerable. They arrest <laughs> when me the, and I'm when the cops naked. Show up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because usually you just get to keep whatever you have on. <laughs> and he had nothing. So. so, yeah. They went in and approached him and told him that he needs to come in for questioning. He didn't fight it. He was very cooperative and agreed to talk to them. During the long car ride, Reinick was able to earn Carrie's trust some. Okay. They talked about his brother. Again, they didn't talk about the murder, but as soon as they got to the field office, Carrie was ready to confess, although he made several weird comments, something like, this is going to be my last meal as a free man. Okay. And he shocked them by trying to have this trade. He agreed to tell them everything about Joey's murder and more mm-hmm. if they would give him some child pornography. Oh, my God. Specifically requesting three to four photos. That's S- fucked. Yeah. Clearly, they weren't going to do that. <laughs> so I would hope not. They yeah. got him to reveal the details of Joey's murder regardless. And after some time, he confessed to killing Carol, Julie, and Sylvina. Okay. What is it with every case we do lately? It's like everybody like wants to mess with children. Like we don't even go looking for this. If we anything, don't. We try to avoid these cases. But it's in every single case. I feel like I know it just comes out of nowhere. Oh yeah, and this guy. Yeah. By he the does way, yeah, like, it's, it's everywhere. What makes this story even crazier is Carol and the two teenagers weren't his first choice uh, that okay. day. It was actually the woman he was dating at the time and her two children, two girls. That he was targeting? Yes. So they were at the hotel? No. Oh. He had started dating this woman in 1998. Carrie was staying in an apartment above the motel restaurant and she started working there as a waitress. Okay. They started dating. He was handsome. And he is, if you look at him. He's a good looking guy. He's a good looking guy. Or he was. And he was nice to her. And he was good with the girls. He drew them pictures, bought them beanie babies, which was the thing at the time. Yeah. And he taught them how to dive in the pool. So he seemed like a great caring boyfriend who was harboring. Yeah. The girls even today described him as this big teddy bear. They loved him. They adored him. And all the while, he had this secret plan and obsession really of his to end their lives. Oh, my God. I never want to date And he, he told the FBI all of this. <laughs> That's so messed up. They were his intended victims that day. It was the day after Valentine's Day in 1999. Okay. But his plans were ruined because he went to where they lived and there was another person on the property that day and he had no choice but to move on. But he had everything ready. Oh. So he decided to drive to the motel and he saw that at one of the motel's buildings, there was a single red car in the parking lot. The drapes were open and he could see Carol and the two girls. And he waited a while to see if there was a man, but there wasn't one. And when he was sure that there wasn't a man, he went to the door. And you know the rest of the story. Yeah. So it's crazy. (sighs) You can't want this lady and her two little girls to have died. Right. But Carol and her daughter and their friend were murdered because he couldn't do it to this family. That's so messed up. Beyond messed up. But had they not arrested Carrie when they did for Joey's murder, yeah. his girlfriend and those two little girls were definitely on the list. Of course. And were probably next. He was still fantasizing and you know planning yeah. and plotting when. Yep. He also admitted to an attempt or plan to kill two Finnish girls in 1998. Okay. I think they might have been staying at the motel as well. Right. But their advisor showed up and okay. he fled. So he's been trying to Watching do this it. and he's yeah. admitted to some stuff. After he was done confessing, he also willingly took the FBI agent's 
to where they could find more evidence to use against him. Like the items so he disposed of after the murders. It's like he wanted to be stopped. Yeah. He was had this compulsion so. he couldn't control. And that's just part of being just a fucked up kid, having a fucked up life. No one to talk to ever. Yeah. They just ignored him. Right. You know, he was one of five children and they had this horrible thing happen to them. But he was already fucked up from the beginning and his Sounds parents like- weren't paying attention to him. Yeah. If you're raising boys out there, make sure you hug them and talk to them and love them. Have these conversations that you think are just that are too intimate to have with a little boy. You need to have these conversations. Otherwise, they become sick, twisted. We're all human beings. Right. And we all have every level of emotion. Just because it's a boy doesn't mean toughen up. Right. Be a man. Don't cry. They're little boys. They're little. Give me a break. Human beings. So they had him. That was it. Okay. He was held until his first trial in 2000. For Joey's murder, he was tried in federal court because the murder happened on federal Uh, land. To avoid the death penalty, he pleaded guilty to premeditated first-degree murder, felony first-degree murder, kidnapping resulting in death, and attempted aggravated sexual abuse resulting in death. He did break down crying during this trial, saying, I wish I could take it back. I can't. I wish I could tell you why I did such a thing, but I don't even know myself. I'm sorry. I wish there was a reason, but there isn't. It's senseless. Joey's mother even started crying during the statement. She did believe that his apology was genuine. Yeah. Even one of the FBI agents did not think that he was a psychopath. Okay. He thought he was just extremely troubled. Mm -hmm. He cried a lot during his confessions as well and didn't resist. They thought he was genuine in his regret, but that does not excuse what he did. Never. And for Joey's murder, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Good. So this is just Joey. I have a hard time. You decapitate. That's very specific. So I have a hard time. Yeah. (laughs) You are a threat. Like no other, Uh, if you can do that. But he still had to be tried for Carol, Julie, and Sylvina's deaths. For their murders at his 2002 trial, he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity in state court. Okay. His lawyers brought up his family's history, not just of his brother, but the history of sexual abuse and mental illness in his family because it was generational. Yeah. They also talked about his obsessive compulsive disorder. A doctor for the defense testified to this disorder and also said that Carrie had mild autism and paraphilia. Okay. Regardless of their efforts, though, he was found to be sane and was convicted of three counts of first degree murder and one count of kidnapping on August 27th, 2002, and he was sentenced to death. Oh, wow. Okay. He is currently 62 years old and on death row at San Quentin State Prison in California. California has not executed inmates since 2006, but if they start again, he will have his time. And today, he has ultimately been coined the Yosemite Park Killer. Oh, okay. I have heard of that. So this is Stephen's brother. That's so wild. (laughs) (laughs) That's the twist. But there's another twist. Oh, shit. Because it's possible that his four victims were not his first. Oh, no. Okay, so knowing that similar offenders start their violent crimes at younger ages. If you look back and you look into serial killers that we know a lot about, things start much younger Mm -hmm. than when they're caught. Yes. Authorities believe he may be responsible for several other unsolved murders and disappearances going back as far as 1982. Okay. So we're going to go over those. And some of these I could do entire episodes on. So we're doing tiny little snippets here. Okay. So I don't know. We'll come back to them. Maybe. Who knows? We'll see. 
So if I do do these later, don't judge us in these snippets because we're not actually researching them (laughs) as much as we (laughs) should be. We're just high level. Yes, exactly. High level information, especially this first one. I'll cover it quickly. The first is Patricia Marie Hicks Dahlstrom. She went by Patty. She was 28 years old. In 1982, Carrie would have been 21 years old. Okay. So he's old enough now. Mm -hmm. So we're going back to this time. She had relocated to Merced, California, which is where the Stainers live. Yeah, that's where he's at. She had joined the Sand Anda Apostolic Church, which was a cult. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This cult was led by Donald Gibson. Her family stopped hearing from her, which is a very cult thing to do, as we know. And her story is actually on Wild Crime. It's a TV series. You can go watch. Watch. And there was an investigation into this cult because of, surprise, sexual assault (laughs) (laughs) carried out under religious pretenses. Three young boys went to the authorities claiming to have been given LSD and then were assaulted upon meeting this leader. What the fuck's going on in Merced, California? (laughs) And this reminds me of the kids that went through this in the family. It was LSD and then they talked about being sexually assaulted. But there were a lot of drugs, sexual rituals, arranged marriages, and eventually the leader Gibson was put on trial for this in 1981, and he was found guilty of four counts of sexual offenses. Patty testified against Gibson at this trial, okay. but in between being convicted and his sentencing, he somehow managed to flee, and he has never been found. That's scary. Do you see why this is an That's entire story? That's a whole story. episode. Like, I want to hear more this about this. This is an entire yeah. story. That's one of our cult episodes at some point, probably. It's crazy. And her murder is unsolved. Okay. Okay. He is possibly still out there. I I don't know. Maybe he died. This was a long time ago. We have no idea. But after Gibson fled, Patty took it as her chance to leave. Okay. She was last seen boarding public transportation going to Yosemite National Park. Mm -hmm. Missing since until 2021. They found a severed arm and hand in the park on June 28th, 1983. Okay. And a skull was found near that original scene in 1988. But they didn't know that it was Patty until genetic genealogy identified the remains in 2021. Okay. But other than the area and why Carrie could have been a suspect, we also know that he had this fantasy, right? He wanted to kill women since he was a child. Right. But he also attended Gibson's trial. Oh, so he saw this woman. And he was known to be acquainted with Gibson at the time. Okay. Authorities say that he might have chosen to kill her in retaliation for her testifying against Gibson. Okay. So that's Patty. Yeah. We don't know who killed her. There's a bunch of theories out there. You can go look her up. Maybe we're going to cover her, the whole cult. Right. It is a whole story. The next possibility, which I really think could be the case, okay, is his uncle Jerry. Oh. Now remember, this is the one that he was really close with that was yes. murdered in his own home with his own gun. It's not unheard of that even in these troubled people's lives that they kill someone that they love, even if they didn't mean to. Okay. The murder was never solved. Uh Uh-huh. And there was nothing indicating that he would have been targeted by anybody else. Okay. Even if it was an invasion. Okay. And how old was Stainer when his uncle was killed again? I'm guessing he would have been about 28. Okay. So he's older now, but he's living with his uncle. Okay. And he was killed with his own weapon. So (laughs) he probably knew where this weapon was. That would make sense. And even though in the beginning, their relationship was portrayed as possibly like the only positive relationship he had in his life, Carrie does later claim that his uncle molested him around the time that Stephen was kidnapped. Fuck. It's just everywhere. Everybody's molested. Everybody's molesting. Everybody. It's ridiculous. Literally every single person in that family has been touched. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So I think this is a really high possibility if that happened. And it makes sense that he lost it after this. Yeah. His brother was now gone and now his uncle. And if he killed him, it probably tore him up. It was like this love-hate relationship, I'm sure. And if he stopped being molested by his uncle when Stephen went missing, it was probably like, why are you pulling back your weird love for me now? And who knows? So much to that. But I can see this happening. So Uncle Jerry's gone. And if he did kill him, that probably fucked him up for a while. Yeah. (laughs) So there's that. The third possible murder he may have committed was that of 24-year-old Sherilyn Mavon Murphy, In October of 1994, severed human hands were found near the New Malonis Reservoir. Okay. Similar to Patty, they didn't have an identity yet. Okay. A couple months later, they found a headless and handless torso in between some trees off of Camp 9 Road near Balacito, California. Okay. They were able to identify that the hands belonged to the body. The body. Yeah. It wasn't until a year later that they determined the remains were from Sherilyn and they have not found her head. And just a couple of months later, they discovered the body of 34-year-old Denise Smith. She was in a 50-gallon burn barrel off Jacksonville Road near Don Pedro Reservoir in December of 1994. And if you remember, that's where Julie's son was found. Oh, so, so that's like his little. Th- this is his killing ground. Buried ground, yeah. It's his dumping ground. It's where he goes to release, but also where he goes to do things. Yeah. The last is Michael Larry Madden. A boy. I know a boy. That's yeah. This is the one weird one, but you never know. He's trying new things. This is later too. Okay. So he was 20 years old and planned to meet friends at the Sandbar Flat Campground in the Stanislaus National Forest near Sonora, California. He was going to camp and fish. This was on August 10th, 1996. He left that day at 5 a.m. and he never showed up to meet his friends. Okay. He is still considered missing, so they haven't found him yet, but he okay. is thought to be a possible victim of Carrie's due to the proximity to Yosemite area. National Park. It's not his M.O. to kill boys. That we so. know of. That's the point. You're is right. Once you know there's a serial killer in an area and certain things line up, then you have to consider those people to and, be yeah. a possible victim. And we know he's compulsive like when it didn't work out for him to kill the person he wanted to he went and just killed someone else so it could have been a situation like that and he's like I just have to kill someone and here's this 19 year old boy right and he just went to go skip rocks in a creek one day and he's like oh there's a girl hmm guess I should kill her too I guess he was just always ready to kill yes he was because I haven't talked about it yet but the girlfriend and her two daughters Uh I was watching an interview with them okay in a documentary and the older daughter kind of reflects back and she she really loved him she said that there was one weird incident that they were all near a creek one day and he started taking off his clothes and she was really young and she's like this is weird like Like he was about to show himself i'm not gonna do whatever this is and And she she just remembers got the fuck out (laughs) but another thing that she remembers is he always had a little backpack with him okay and they found out later that this backpack it had duct tape like he always had this gun like he always had what was later referred to as like his kill pack he so always he was had something with him to do something. It was with him everywhere he went, on him, in his car, everywhere. That's like next level psychopath. Yeah. So he is a psychopath. Yes. Or our only way to describe these people is to call them psychotic. Yes. So fun. <laughs> he's a, yeah, he's a fun one. But it makes you wonder how many murders go unsolved because they were the murders of serial killers before they were caught. Yep, they got to start somewhere. Poor and families. You're right. They may never have answers. I it's know. difficult. 
How many? How many of the missing people that, you know, bodies have never been found, mm-hmm. they just went missing are same thing. Right. A lot of people try to say, or there's a lot of coverage of Carrie that tries to convince you that Stephen's kidnapping and his coming back is what led Carrie down this path. No. No. Doesn't sound like that. They also say that he just wanted to rise above his brother in some way. Good or be, bad, to be a celebrity himself. As I say, be more famous. Right. Regardless of the consequences. I'm sure what happened to Stephen played a part, but the pieces were all there to begin with. Yes. Maybe it just sped him up. I don't know. Right. Or maybe he would have done all of this regardless. Yes. Even at the same age. Probably. We will never know. I mean, if you're fantasizing about killing women at Uh, six six years old, there's some serious issues already going on. That's not something you outgrow. I think we need to do an episode on what the fuck is in the water in Merced, California. Because I like the title of that. What the (laughs) fuck is in the water? Because there's a lot of messed up people in that area. There's the cult leader dude and then this whole family Mm -hmm. and wherever they came from, everybody molesting everybody. And then there's Parnell. Mm -hmm. Something's up in Merced. Yep. And I'm sorry, when it comes to Carrie, you don't think about killing children. Now, no, he was considering killing these two little girls. You don't kill children to get media coverage. No. Like, this isn't what no. that's about. I think that's what makes him sane and responsible for his actions. Because he knew it. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. He was in his late 30s at this time. He wasn't a teenager anymore. Steven was long gone. Right. No one was talking about him anymore. Right. And if he wanted to be known for killing people, he could have just shot people. But he did but sadistic he raped, shit. He strangled. Yeah. He mutilated. He decapitated. He, he liked walked pornography. Around, he walked around with a fucking kill kit. He had a kill <laughs> kit with him at all times. Like, so. he was well aware. This yeah. was not like he went into a psychotic break and killed people. He no. was, like, actively scouting people to kill. At least he just went quietly. Yeah. We'll see what happens. He confessed and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Not to these ones they think might be him, too. He hasn't confessed to those. Mm -mm. I mean, it would help with the families getting closure if he would confess because nothing worse can happen to him. He's already on death row. I know. And what's creepy is if it's not him. That means there's another one. Then that means there's more. And we already know that. It's California. And there can't only be one serial killer in Yosemite National Park. That's what makes me worried about this whole <laughs> area and you and your child. And yeah. Okay. So I will take a gun. Yes. I will. I, but I am also never going to let anybody in my room. If somebody wants to come into my room, I'd be like, cool, I'm going to step out while you do that. But yep. then I'm worried they're putting cameras in there. So I'd probably just go down to the front desk and be like, hey, there's a problem in my room. I need a different room. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that some dude showed up. But this was the seven. Wait, no, this was the 90s. Yeah, this isn't. But even then. The 90s, that's when you and I were running around doing whatever the yeah, fuck we wanted. 94, so it doesn't yeah. matter. It was we're still, still happening. Free reign. Yeah. We didn't have the coverage that we have now for all of us to be aware of what darkness is out there. Like there just wasn't as but much. But we do and it still happens. You're right. Anyway. Uh, so what happened to everyone else? Yes. Well, first, sweet Timmy White. Is he still sweet Timmy White? Or is we're he a serial g- killer now too? Thankfully, he's not a serial killer. Okay, good. But it's still sad. Oh, we no. know that he kept in touch with Steven and mm-hmm. he was a pallbearer at his funeral. Timmy went on to be a Los Angeles Sheriff's Department deputy. Oh, wow. Okay. He married a woman named Dina and they had two children together. But sadly, at just the age of 35, he died from a pulmonary embolism in 2010. Oh, it's just tragic. Tragedy after tragedy yeah. in this story. But there is no happy ending <laughs> for no, anyone. It's not happy. But to remember Timmy and Stephen and what they went through, there was a statue of the two of them installed at Applegate Park in Merced. Okay. And it's of Stephen holding Timmy's hand to represent their escape. That's cute. So it's, it's a sweet, sweet tribute. Yeah. yeah. 
I watched a documentary that came out last year called Captive Audience, A Real American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. And to just end this episode, I'm going to talk from the family's perspectives, their own words and what they went through over the years because they wanted to be part of something that was from their experience. Okay. Since their story, it's been told so many times for so long. Everything that's out there is just because the media has always been on it. They've always been on this family. Mm -hmm. So Delbert Stainer, the father, he passed away at home at the age of 79 in Winton, California on April 9th, 2013. Okay. After the trials for Carrie with both their sons gone now, they retreated and lived a very quiet life away from people. Kay Stainer is still with us. Okay. She was present in this documentary. She was interesting to listen to. Her take on things anyway. It felt like Delbert's take would have been really important. It was missing. Okay. Because he had such an influence, especially on the children growing up, that it would have been, you know, important to hear. But we don't have that. What's crazy is that Kay stayed with him. After all that time. And she knew, I would assume she knew what he was doing to their daughters. We don't know how much of what is speculation and what's past that. That's why I'm saying it's like, take things with a grain of salt. We know that there is molestation in this family. Yeah. And we do know the strictness and everything. It was generational. And I know that to an extent they proved this in court when it came to Carrie, like in his defense. But I just don't know what right now. And they're not going to talk about this in a documentary, especially if the mom is involved in offering up her own opinions. But even now, even though she was emotional at times, you could just tell from the way that she spoke that there was this like can't describe it there was like this lack of affection like a way a normal mom would be talking about her children she just wasn't but she has regrets yeah there was just she was this kind of cold distant person that's just how she came off to me she was almost too blase Mm -hmm. about everything in her older age but it was a long time ago (laughs) i don't know I'm, i'm sure that she sorted through some of this a while back but that was just my initial reaction yeah she does regret things though okay she regrets not trying to reach him more and stopping all of the media attention right away yeah it was too much and she regrets not just making a statement like okay yes he's home we're so happy now leave us alone like right. respect our privacy I'm sure at the time she also sort of liked the media attention. Some people, you know, it's that celebrity thing. And now they're getting attention and maybe gifts. I don't know. Right. Who knows? But looking back, she wished she had stopped it because the publicity followed him for the rest of his life. Yeah. He never had a break. Right. And when it came to Carrie and what he did. Oh, my God. (laughs) She had nothing to say about that. What do you say when your child is a fucking monster? You're just like, I didn't raise him that way. I don't know. It's hard to wrap your head around yeah I like if one of my children became a serial killer I don't I don't know I know this whole family it's like okay they had this whole Steven situation and he right. died and now the brother has killed people in horrific horrific, horrific ways. ways yeah it follows you forever for Steven's children they didn't really know him which is very sad that is sad he loved his kids very much but when you die when you know kids They're are young that can happen yeah no one really talked about him growing up. So the kids just feel like, okay, well, I had a dad, but my dad died. Right. Steven Jr. does not remember one thing about his father. He has zero memories has of him. Yeah. yeah. And it's through this documentary that you hear about Steven from their perspective. Not until well into adulthood did these two kids feel like they were ever in the right mindset to look into their father more. They knew what happened, but they didn't know him. 
Ashley right. had some sweet memories, even at three. She had a few sweet memories of him and they had two boxes of stuff from their dad, but they never went through the boxes until this documentary. So that was kind of interesting to see. Okay. They have all the clippings and videos from when he came back as a teenager, but they wanted to know more about him. And this documentary was a way for them to start. And really, these people, they come from this family with crazy history. Right. But I'd say even though they've been through a lot, they both seemed like really kind, well-adjusted people. And Jody was really, she was an interesting person, too. She was on this documentary. Okay. She had a little bit of spunk, you could tell. Okay. (laughs) But it was hard for her, too. And the way that they handled his passing, I don't know if I would completely agree with, but. Sadly, after Stephen died, you know, she had to move on. Right. And she had these two little kids. And she remarried a few years later, and the stepdad was not the kindest stepdad. Did he molest the kids? No. Okay, thank you. That that I'm aware of. (laughs) I was just ready for it. (laughs) But he was jealous of Stephen, even in death. And he wouldn't let anyone talk about him and would get mad if they talked about him. Ego. He was even jealous of Stephen's family. He wouldn't let the kids see them very often. And when they did, he would stay and watch over them and... He just didn't like the family at all. So he was snuffed out of their lives, essentially, which is really unfair. Just because this guy was what's insecure. Yeah. (laughs) What's the word? Insecure. You know, the mom couldn't do everything on her own and she needed help. And it just ended up that way. Ashley remembers seeing the movie for the first time when she was eight years old. She was at an aunt's house or something. And it was a weird experience to be watching a movie about your father. That you don't really know. And his experiences. Yeah. And now he's gone. And now you can't talk about him. Yeah. It's surreal. Yeah. That would be very strange. Both Ashley and Steven Jr. watched the movie quite a few times since. Okay. It was their only connection to him Mm -hmm. in a way. And it was really traumatizing for them (laughs) to Uh, realize what their dad went through as a child. Right. And also finding out that what was in the movie wasn't exactly what happened to. So they had to learn. Yeah. What was true and what wasn't. Right. And the reality was much darker than Mm. was even in the movie. It was a lot for them to work through. But it was also confusing for them growing up because their father died when they were so young and they would see the actor who played him in the movie like go on TV. Oh. And to them, they'd be like, there's my my dad. dad. (laughs) And it wasn't. Yeah. And they would like want to go hug him. And it's like just an actor and it's not their dad. It was really confusing. Another interesting tidbit about Stephen's daughter, Ashley, she's a lot like us. She's a true crime fan. She own a podcast? No. (laughs) Some people might think that's odd considering what her family went through. But in a way, Mm -hmm. she was very removed from all of it growing up, really. And if anything, it probably made her more curious about it. I think it's, yeah, a form of therapy in a way. Yeah. True crime. Make her feel less Mm -hmm. alone. That other families, other people go through similar things. Right. They have fucked up situations that follow them their whole lives. Yep. But she was really curious into what makes people hurt other people. She remembers when Carol, Julie, and Sylvina went missing. Mm Mm-hmm. Because Merced, where she lived, as we discussed, is the gateway to Yosemite National Park. Right. And it was a big deal for three people to go missing. Yeah. Especially teenagers. Parents were worrying. And it was what happened to her dad. He went missing. And when she found out that they were murdered. By her uncle. (laughs) Well, not yet. Because they didn't say that right away. Right. They didn't know who did it yet. And when she found out that they were murdered, she remembers because she was 13 years old. Okay. And so it was like the thing. Yeah, you're afraid. And they're teenagers. So now she's afraid. And when they found the two, she thought maybe Julie might still be alive. 
She had no idea that it was her uncle. Right. Who took them and worse, murdered them in the way that that he did. Yeah. When she and her brother found out, they were shocked, obviously. For both her and her brother, Stephen, it was really difficult at school. Mm -hmm. Their father was famous for being abducted, coming back and being a hero, saving this other little boy. And now their uncle is a serial killer. (laughs) Poor kids. (laughs) They're like, we got to move and change our names. Yeah. Well, their mom and stepdad tried. For them, they're like, it was really confusing for a child to have to answer for somebody that you never even knew really in your life. And they did try to change their names, but it made them both mad. They were trying to change their last name to their stepdad's last name. And all they had left of their dad was their name. So they didn't want that. Their uncle was a monster, but their last name was from their dad. Yeah. Their dad was was a a really good guy. Yeah. So they held on to his name and continued on living their lives as best as they could until they didn't have to be in school anymore. And they both seemed like sweet people. Good. So regardless of everything that has happened, one thing is for sure, this family captured attention for decades. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we kind of asked, why this family? Why did Parnell become the monster he was? Yeah. Why did he choose Stephen? Why yeah, Timmy? Right. Why did Stephen die? Why did Timmy die? Why does all of this happen? Why does anything happen? Sometimes it feels like when one tragedy happens, tragedy follows. So maybe it's just energy attracting energy. Maybe it was destined. Yeah. Either way, the monsters were put away, but their family and the families of victims will never forget and it will follow them for generations as well. And it will mold how that family right. reacts to things and Anyway, that's it. It's like, sorry to end on a sour note, but this is the story. And it is. Tragedy follows tragedy. It's, I don't a, it's generational trauma. I mean, it sounds like it's a crazy story. At least Stephen's kids don't seem to have that curse. They seem to be OK. They seem to be OK. But you can tell that, you know, they still live in trauma themselves. Yeah. Almost because they were too protected from knowing the truth growing up. But then their uncle became a serial killer. Yeah. You can't really hide from that one. You know, it's how do you hide from that? They didn't know him, really, but that becomes a stain in your life as well. Yeah. And you almost have to do better than everyone else just because you're related to that person. Yeah. There's a lot of stigma that comes with family and we can't choose what family we're born into. And that's the whole, like they say, the genetic lottery. (laughs) That's where we're at. Or, you know, (laughs) destiny. Yes. They say we choose who we come down to. That's true. If you believe in reincarnation and past lives, there is that (laughs) whole thought that you choose maybe that soul needed the trauma to live through that experience to grow their soul or whatever. I'm trying to think what the word is reach nirvana get that way it is interesting to think of it as a lottery like they just have like a bunch of like scenarios in a pot <laughs> and they just pull one out and they're like stainer family yeah they're a cursed yes. family and then there's some soul that's like "Ooh, i want to do that and maybe <laughs> if you're young you only live to a certain age right if you're innocent in that family or something i don't yeah. know who knows, who knows? Just a crazy story. And I remember listening to something and it was uh, Steven's story. And then all of a sudden it switched and they're like, oh, and his brother is a serial killer. And I was like, what? (laughs) You're like just making dinner and you're like, wait, where am I? (laughs) So I just had to cover the story. Wow. No, this was very, very interesting. And I think I have heard of the Yosemite killer, but I didn't know anything other than the title. Mm -hmm. I also think there's a Yellowstone killer because I have it on a list. Oh, I'm sure there's many killers and you can't share the same title. So you have to (laughs) every national park has its own killer yeah 
Or at least the big famous Every ones. river has 10 of them and they just like change it a little bit. <laughs> yes. And like if you want to be an aspiring serial killer, you look at the list and see which one hasn't been done yet. And you're like, oh, OK, I but can go then... be the great sand dunes serial killer. <laughs> because oh, shoot. Nobody's Don't done give it ideas. There. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. The other thing about these serial killers is the media chooses your name and then some get mad and they write in. They're like, that's not my name. I named myself before. You have to use this. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, I've been dreaming about this my whole life. I have a name for myself. <laughs> that was like Mikhail Popkoff. Yeah. With, you know, he mm-hmm. had like five different names and he had his own name that he wanted to be known by. Yeah. But he became known as the werewolf instead. Yeah. I think that's happened with several serial killers, especially the kind that like to communicate in some yeah. mysterious way with authorities. The ones that are seeking that fame. Mm hmm. Well, this was not a uplifting story, but we never promised that anyways. But I was like intrigued the whole time because I had not heard it. And I'm sure there's Mm going to be other listeners out there. Same thing. It's wild. But with that, we are going to be back next Tuesday with another new episode. Yep. And you know where to find us in the meantime. We are on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, all at Lucid Lab Podcast, one word. If you have a lab report you would like to send in, please send that to lucidlabpodcast at gmail.com or you can mail to P.O. Box 251 East Lake, Colorado, 80614. Please go on anywhere that you listen to our podcast and give us a rating. We are working at getting our podcast on Pandora. So yeah, we just realized we're not on there. Yeah, we're missing a big one. Anyways, (laughs) uh, we appreciate any feedback you can give us, especially positive feedback, because that helps us get noticed and anything else you can send to our email that we just gave you. Other than that, we're going to sign off for today. Yep. And in the meantime, stay lucid. Watch out for guys with little backpacks. <laughs> for sure. Who if they always have, have it with them. <laughs> if they have a backpack, say, I want to know what's in there. Or maybe you don't want to know what's in there. I know. Maybe not. <laughs> Just always stay lucid and always stay aware. And yes. if you have red flags about anybody, listen to them and get to the bottom of it if you can do so in a safe manner. Absolutely. Goodbye, everybody. Bye.